Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. We'd like to start this week with what we could call this week in COVID. It's been an interesting spate of COVID news recently. A federal judge in Florida on Monday voided a national mask mandate for airplanes and in other transportation settings. This follows news from the end of last week that federal officials had extended the mask mandate for commercial flights and in other transportation settings until May 3rd. Paul, You and I just came off of completing an interview with the former lead COVID reporter for the New York Times, Donald G. McNeil Jr. He's been a previous guest on Beyond Politics. That interview is going to air this Thursday on WKXL. It will be in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. We don't want to give away the whole interview, which was really fascinating before it airs, but Donald's contention is we're sort of messing up the next pandemic because the next pandemic is going to come. We're sort of muddling our way out of the end of this one. We can't quite figure out what to do with mandates for masks or vaccines or any other public health measures. In fact, public health measures have sort of become a dirty politicized term. Uh, Paul, what do you make of this run of news, the fact that cases are rising in the Northeast, and everything that Donald McNeil had to say in our interview, how are we doing on COVID, and how badly set up are we for the next pandemic that's inevitably going to come? Well, first of all, for the for the immediate situation, in the immediate situation, um, COVID cases, which uh, are apparently resulting from sub-variants of the Omicron, Omicron virus and its sub-variants. So these are sub-variants and then sub-variants of sub-variants, including one that has now surfaced uh, across the pond in England called XE, which appears to be a combination of two sub-variants. Um, they are producing um, the beginnings of what could be a spike or surge, especially in the Northeast. Um, Just uh, the other day, uh, the news from New Hampshire was that uh, uh, tests of the wastewater effluent um, are showing a huge increase um, in uh, COVID, uh, which, which while maybe not yet in in evidence in the population is certainly a harbinger of what could come. Boston is very concerned because they're seeing uh, they're seeing a spike. So, you know, the the challenge is everybody's so tired. We're all just tired of this. It's like, okay, give it. You know, do I have to worry? Don't I have to worry? Am I wearing a mask? Am I not wearing a mask? Masks have generally disappeared. 
Um, a number of, uh, uh, I think it was Republican governors, sued uh, the Trump administration to prevent the extension of the mask mandate on public transportation. And now a federal judge in Florida, for what that's worth, a federal judge in Florida, um, has ruled that the mask mandate for public transportation exceeds uh, the CDC's authority. Now, whether or not that means that if you fly or or ride a bus, um, you're going to see masks or not see masks, who knows? Um, we don't know yet whether that decision is going to be appealed or not. But the Biden administration has been under a lot of pressure to reduce mask mandates. I saw a talking head uh, on television last night, a doctor who said, my kids are going to school and nobody's wearing masks. Um, and the issue is when you've had such contentious, such contentious political wrangling over these issues, as Don McNeil points out, without getting uh, political about it from his standpoint, from the public health standpoint, um, we're going to have other pandemics. They are they're going to be other global pandemics. And where does it leave us in terms of our preparation? Uh, the next time this happens, are we going to have the same kind of failure of leadership at the top about this? Are we going to are we going to be basically prevented from treating a public health emergency as a public health emergency as opposed to a political a dysfunctional event. Um, at the moment, um, we have had reasonably good vaccination rates in many parts of the country, but not all parts of the country. If you looked at the, at the CDC map of Maine, you would see that in the less vaccinated um, regions of Maine, especially in the North Woods and in the more, in the, you know, most, a lot of the rural areas, um, the risk is much higher for community trans transmission. Um, so we haven't learned much of a lesson. Maybe it's too early into this pandemic to learn a lesson about uh, how to treat a, a, a contentious public health emergency. But uh, Don McNeil, I, I, I highly recommend uh, the podcast on Beyond Politics with Donald McNeil. He's really smart and he's able to boil things down into plain English. Uh, he knows the science, he understands the politics, um, but is able to put things uh, into a plain English like a good insurance policy and uh, let us know that, folks, we're in trouble for the next time around. Um, not, and we're not out of the woods quite yet. Uh, here, it looks like we're going to be living with with a variant of COVID. Uh, we're just, it's here, and we're going to be dealing with it um, uh, pretty regularly for the foreseeable future. I guess, Alicia, I would turn that around into a question to you, which is, from your perspective, is where Paul just landed, look, we're going to be living with this, it's going to come back, there are going to be waves, they could be bad, they could not be bad, and we might have another pandemic. How worried does all that make you? Or have we just transitioned to this is a fact of life and maybe it's time to stop trying to push a string. Maybe this federal judge is right, at least politically, if not on the law, that it's just we, we, we can't make these things happen anymore. That's not where the public is. 
I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question of because I'm personally very neurotic. So <laughs> I still wear my mask. I still do all that. Uh, the idea of, okay, we're just going to have to live with it. That stresses me out. But again, I'm more neurotic than most. I, I, I think Paul's right. I think there is going to be a component we're living with. What we're seeing in the current strains, though, while the sub sub variants and whatnot, while they are more, uh, they spread a little easier. They are much milder. Um, I think the question then becomes, does this mutate to be something harsher? And then the question is, will the public reply? Will they take it seriously? And that's what I don't know. Uh, I, I don't actually, I do know. I don't think a, a, enough of a chunk of the public would take it seriously if this were either a new pandemic or this reverts back to <clears throat> being a very serious disease that may or may not be covered by the vaccinations we have. Everything has become political. I don't know why. Masks are political. Vaccines are political. The existence of the virus and how serious it is, political. Um, you know, if you like Donald Trump and he suggested something, it's good. If you like Donald Trump and Biden suggested something, it's bad, vice versa. Uh, and it's just that simple. I think part of the problem with the CDC is, and they are to blame in part for this, their inconsistency for a year and a half. Uh, I couldn't keep up and I followed very closely and I, I, I was always sympathetic with the fact that no one knew what's going on and this is a new thing we're all stepping into, including the CDC, but they did an incredibly poor job of consistency, constantly changing rules, confusing rules. It would be day after day for like a period of two weeks, be like, okay, so am I getting a vaccine? Am I supposed to get a booster? I don't know what's going on. They put themselves in the position of being mistrust, mistrusted. As for this mask mandate, look, as I said, I, I, I wear a mask. I've never understood why it's a big darn deal. Um, I think it protects others and, your, and oneself to an extent. But I think maybe the CDC is overstepping its bounds at this point. We are well into this. Uh, you know, what a transit authority of a town in Iowa chooses to do on their local buses probably shouldn't be mandated by the CDC at this point. Um, I'm all for reducing that level of the federal government's arm reaching out and telling private communities or other things what to do uh and airplanes are private businesses they're federally regulated but at the end of the day airlines are private businesses and they're telling them what to do too so i do fear for the future if something bad happens another pandemic another mutation that's bad that people are fatigued they're tired and they're mistrusting understandably of the federal government I agree with that last point. One of the things that came through in the interview with Donald McNeil, which is airing this Thursday on WKXL at five o'clock, will also be available as a podcast first thing Thursday morning, is that what he finds in his study of effectiveness of public health measures around the world is that the common element is not being in a democracy. It is not being an autocracy. There are autocracies that have done well. There are autocracies that have done badly and same for democracies. The key ingredient he finds is trust, but a specific kind of trust. It's the public's trust in the government to deliver health information that they find credible. And that's where I think, Alicia, you make a really good point, which is for whatever reason, and you can put this blame on Donald Trump, you can put this blame on the CDC, or you can put it on the very weird interplay that we had between what the CDC was trying to do and the crazy stuff that Donald Trump was trying to do and everything that everyone's been trying to do since then to play catch up for whatever reason, you're right. There has been confusion. There have been too many changes. There's frankly been too much information for people to absorb. I, 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 the further I go in this, in this profession, in this sector, the more I learn that it's 
one thing. You can communicate one thing at a time. That's really all the ear or the brain can hold. Certainly all that my brain can hold. And it's not just that we've had shifting guidance. It's that it's been too much from too many directions. And so ultimately, the final analysis, I think we do need to really pull back on mandates, on public health efforts, on messaging. I think we need to take a strategic pause not because we're not still fighting COVID. We are still fighting COVID, for goodness sakes. It's because it will no longer help. It's already falling on deaf ears. The people who are with you and doing all the things they should be doing from a public health standpoint, they're already there. The people who are not, you're not going to get them by saying more stuff. And what we really need to do is to focus on recharging everyone's batteries for the next pandemic. We will we should take a strategic pause here on pushing various mandates so that the next time there's a variant that's super dangerous or the next time there's a new pandemic, we have the public wherewithal to actually make a difference with the next set of steps. With that said, let's move on to another intractable problem that seems to be going on. And this time I'd like to focus in on this week in Democrats, we had kind of a twin set of, of inputs here from notable figures in the Democratic Party in the last few days. Elizabeth Warren did an op-ed in the New York Times in which she said, look, we all see the coming train wreck coming in the midterms. So what we need to do is engage on passing the rest of President Biden's agenda. Voters need to see that Democrats are following through on promises and getting stuff done or we're even more toast than it looks like we're going to be. At the same time, John Anzalone, who was President Biden's lead pollster in the 2020 campaign, and also a previous guest on Beyond Politics, said a very similar thing in his interview on the Politico Deep Dive podcast, in which he said, look, this is the most toxic environment politically that he has seen ever, ever in his career. The only thing that Democrats can do to try to mitigate the damage is to play small ball, bunts and singles, stop swinging for the fences, just get anything done, any slimmed down version of Build Back Better, any forward progress on the myriad fronts that Americans are worried about. Alicia, I'm going to turn to you first here. You are our resident communications and messaging guru. Obviously, we're talking about substance, not just messaging. And I know you just love handing out advice to Democrats. But where do you come down on these two sets of inputs that we're hearing from these notable figures? Do you, do you think that they're right, that Democrats need to get some more stuff done in the next few months? And do you think that it goes more toward the Elizabeth Warren version, which is, hey, let's, let's keep swinging for the fences a little bit more? Or is it much more toward the John Anzalone any progress will do small ball. You know, I think the biggest problem the Democrats right now is actually the messaging. And John's interview, which I read, you know, he's talking about all these things with the problem with the Democratic Party. His own words are actually the problem within the Democratic Party. I mean, let me read this to you. Most Americans are pissed at the fact they paid their fair share of taxes as middle class people. They work hard. They want to see the benefits of the economy. They're getting raises. Yes, inflation's eating it up, but I'll tell you what they're pissed about. They see these big companies not paying taxes. You guys really think that's the problem with middle America right now? You think that's what we care about? I'm going to the grocery store. I'm spending 50% more on a pound of butter. I'm spending 200% more on a carton of eggs. And you think what I'm focusing on is, oh, corporate America needs to pay more taxes. No, I'm focusing on how the heck did my weekly grocery bill become the equivalent of a monthly car payment? 
That's what I'm focused on. And what I found intriguing is his discussion of it. His own take is what the problem is. We aren't focused on the corporate tax structure of America. We're focused on the budgetary restraints in our own households. And that's gas prices, which trickles down into every other grocery cost. I mean, there are parts of shelves that are absolutely bare. I took a picture of a sign at my local Hannaford the other day. I couldn't make chocolate mousse pie on Easter. There is no cream products. That's not an exaggeration. They have a sign up. There is no cream, no heavy cream, no light cream, no half and half. I mean, and I'm sorry, I make chocolate mousse pie every single Easter. I literally couldn't make it this year. That may sound stupid, but that's on my mind a whole lot more and my husband's a whole lot more than the corporate tax structure of America. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren made some good points in her op-ed about refocusing and what the Democrats have to do and they have to demonstrate that they understand the American people are struggling. But again, then she goes to, we got to pass some really big, huge cost, costly things to show the American people are working. No, no, no. What you guys got to do, and if you can't fix it, if you can't fix it, which is possible because there's so much going on in the world, if you can't fix the inflation that is punching us in the face every single day, you better start empathizing with us. Or what's going to happen in November is exactly what I hope happens in November. First of all, I have to invite you to come to my grocery store, which I guess in relative terms is the land of cream. We have plenty of cream. My daughter just made delicious flourless chocolate cake with a chocolate ganache on top with plenty of heavy cream in it. It was fantastic. Plenty of cream for the asking. Also, I would point out, I don't blame John for doing a classic communications pivot. He doesn't really want to be talking about inflation, which hurts his side. So, of course, he wants him to be talking about a relatively better topic. That's just smart. But I hear what you're saying, Alicia. Paul, what do you make of all this? I, I mean, I know you're big into messaging, but is this really a messaging problem? Or is Elizabeth Warren right? And to some extent, is John Anzalone right that there's a substantive problem here that Democrats are up against a what have you done for me lately type thing? And if they don't get more done in the next six months, they are toast. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I made a chocolate. Well, Pego made a chocolate flourless cake and we had whipped cream. It was heavy cream in the little pint thing. So you can come to our grocery store anytime, or I'll ask me to shop for you. I'll pick it up and I'll send it to you in one of those containers that they send medical body parts in so that it arrives perfectly. Uh, the, the answer is both Elizabeth Warren and John Anzalone are wrong. They're wrong um, Alicia is wrong. Matt, you are wrong. And I am wrong. It is not about passing things. It is not about passing big things or small things. And it's not about messaging. What it's about is that people don't feel particularly happy. They're not happy about COVID. They're not happy about war. They're not happy about inflation. They're not happy about the prices at the grocery store or at the gas pump. They're just not happy. They're just not feeling that good feeling vibe. And I don't know what Democrats can do in the face of just not happy. Paul, I would like to give you the audio recording applause version of, I mean, people can't see me on Zoom. I'm applauding you. I think that's the smartest thing you've ever said on this show. I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of insight in that. It was a simple, it's a simple point, but it's, it's a pretty profound one. I think what you're saying in essence is, you know, Dems, you can rearrange the deck chairs, but the reason that this Titanic is going down is because it got speared by an iceberg of unhappiness and you're not going to stop that. Now, that being said, 
I, I think you're, I think Paul, I think you're so profoundly right. I think you are so right. I guess on the margin, Democrats are better served to do something, to have something to bring to the table in the midterms versus nothing in the next six months. There Correct. is a, what are you doing for me lately type problem out there. But I think we're deluding ourselves if we think that that is going to address the core problem that Americans are feeling. But now we have to talk about another topic of great import. And it's, I guess this is theme week. We, we've done this week in COVID. We've done this week in democratic problems. And now we have to talk about small d democratic problems, meaning this week in insurrection. You know, Paul, you and I just released an episode of Beyond Politics in which we interviewed the Boston Globe columnist, Kimberly Atkins Store. Great interview. She's also the co-host of the podcast Sisters-in-Law with our former Beyond Politics guest, Joyce Vance. They're both MSNBC contributors. They're both very keen legal minds. We talked with Kimberly in this episode, and I urge people to check it out. Go check out Beyond Politics. We talked a lot about Merrick Garland, and she made the point that it's interesting that this news has emerged that President Biden's a little bit unhappy with his attorney general because he was sort of hoping that Merrick Garland would go harder after the insurrectionists and maybe even prosecute Donald Trump. And Kimberly's point was, you know, if you didn't want someone to treat the attorney general position like a ponderous federal judge might do, then don't appoint a ponderous federal judge to the position, which is what President Biden ultimately did in Merrick Garland. We've continued to see more and more and more revelations. It's just a constant drip every week. I think the latest out of this weekend insurrection was more text messages with Texas Congressman Chip Roy and Utah Senator Mike Lee texting Mark Meadows, whose phone seems to have been blowing up right before the insurrection saying this is increasingly turning into a disaster. What are these people around Trump doing? Why are they continuing to perpetuate the big lie? And in the face of all of this, do you think, Paul, that Merrick Garland is, is moving too slowly? You, you unearthed an interview in which he said, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of moving at the right pace. We're, we're looking at everything carefully. Is it time for him to hit the accelerator? Look, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. So what we wished for was an attorney general uh, who was ethical, who was honest, who was independent of political influence, who understood the law, who served the interest of the country and not of a particular president. And that's what we got in Merrick Garland. We got exactly what we wished for. Now, uh, you know, there's a there's a real danger in a prosecutor taking an approach, uh, which I, I understand well, which is, hey, I can go to a grand jury and indict the ham sandwich that I'm eating for lunch. All I have to do is uh, present present things in the right way and uh, the, I can uh, help the grand jury reach the right decision. Merrick Garland is not that kind of attorney general. And in fact, um, I have been among the silent but vociferous critics saying, oh, I wish, I wish, please let me see Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit. So, and that really is, is, uh, is um, uh, an analogy for wanting uh, to see the real perpetrators of this coup um, brought to justice and held accountable. 
The interview that um, I uh, recently came across is not something I'd seen before. It was an interview that Merrick Garland did with NPR. And what he basically said in that interview is, um, number one, we are not going to act out of partisanship. Number two, we are not a political body. We are after justice. Number three, we're going to hold everybody who ought to be held accountable, accountable for this uh, 1-6 insurrection. And reading between the lines, um, at least some of the progressive blogs which picked up on this said, oh, happy day. We now see that Merrick Garland is doing what prosecutors have done uh, for eons and eons, which is start from the bottom and put the pressure on from the bottom up on those at the top. And frankly, remember, he has till January of 2025 to do what he's going to do. So Merrick Garland um, is not going to be rushed. He's not going to be pushed. He's not going to be pushed around by people who say, oh, act faster. Um, and, he, you know, I don't know what goes on in his mind, but the interview gave me some comfort that we have a really smart, really experienced, really careful attorney general. And that, frankly, should count for a lot. Alicia, I know I referenced those new text messages. What is going on with with Mark Beto's phone? That seems to be the most interesting phone in the universe. It's like that old Dos Equis ad. It's like the most interesting man in the universe. He's got the most interesting phone in the universe. Everyone's texting him, and it's like it's weird. It's a little weird. But obviously, among those are these are this series of texts from Chip Roy, Texas Congressman, Republican, Mike Lee, noted Republican Utah Senator, and the the tenor of these texts is pretty interesting because I, I, I just, I want to see if your reaction as a Republican sort of mirrored my reaction as a Democrat. I, I, I read this series of texts and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I think I get it. I think I can understand how right after the election, there could have been a mindset of like, huh, we, we went to bed, things were looking good. Then we got up, things weren't looking so good. Things changed. Let's look into this. Let's investigate. Maybe something fishy happened here. There were all these new voting methods. Are we sure this wasn't, you know, some kind of a conspiracy? And then you just see in the texts, the further along you go past the election, the more evidence balance that there, there, there was nothing, there, there was nothing going on here. This, this is just basically a normal election, no fraud, it was all a big lie from Donald Trump. The further along you get, the more these guys are saying, Mark, this is a catastrophe. The president's got to stop this. He's got to stop doing this stuff. Did you read it the same way? Was it in, how did you view that set of texts or did it not grab you particularly? Let me first say, I never thought I'd hear the day where someone compared Mark Meadows to the suave and charming Dosa Key guy. Um, that's just not two people I'd ever really compare. Uh, you know, I read it, I guess I'm one of those people that nothing surprises anymore with this whole situation right now. Um, I read them cause I'm curious and it, it doesn't enlighten me in any way. I mean, what we know now is there was this tiny group of people like Don Jr. And a few others who really thought they could use the, they quote unquote control everything. And so could overturn the election and, propagate a lie about what happened in November. And 
I think they truly believed it. And others that were just on the outside wings were like, you guys got to knock it off. You're killing all of us here, man. You're making us all look kind of crazy. Um, but look, it, it's not a great situation for those people because there is a huge group of people who believe the lie. And, you know, they go after you if you somehow push back against it. If you want to run as a Republican for office, re-election or otherwise, and you don't, you know, it's still two years later almost, and you still have to answer the question, do you believe that Donald Trump is the rightful president of the United States? Like, it's a problem. And so the more these texts come out, I'd like to say it'll open other people's eyes a bit as to what was going on, but it's not going to, because those that believe what they believe are going to believe it. Well, that's fair enough. I, I, I kind of miss those ads. You know, mm-hmm. I miss clever ads. I don't, I don't think there are clever ads anymore. I, I know I sound like Donald Trump here. It's like, remember, there used to be, we used to do great with ads, you know, good ad. Anyway, all right. Well, Let's no, it's a on. good point. It's because every ad has to make a point now. And the point used to just be, let me get your attention and try sell you my product. And now it's like, let me show how, you know, with society I am as I sell my crackers or whatever. You know, it's just, it's, everything's got a point, which it really doesn't. Crackers are either good or not. Does, here's my question. Does anything have a point anymore? I mean, that's really, it's worth asking. All right. This is a politics. <clears throat> we, we don't have to, we don't have to. Moving right along. Into universal on weed. No, Paul, this was your point like five minutes ago that people are just downright depressed. This is actually something worth talking about. I want to there talk is, about. Well, wait a second. Not only ahead. are people, not only are people downright depressed, but, but the incidence of opioid use are way up. Uh, the depression among especially young people is a huge problem Um, and it's endemic. And it's, I think, evidence of what I was saying earlier on. People are just people, folks, we're, we're just unhappy. Only shows like this can really help people out of their mindset because only shows like this, you know, really we deliver truth, justice in the American way um, every week. So we got to keep on doing what we're doing. I think one thing that we do, honestly, is we talk about things that are going on, but we're not like vitriolic, angry or bitter about it. I, I got to feel like that helps at some level. I, you know, I, I will, I will build on your point very slightly though, Paul, I recently hosted on Beyond Politics. Uh, we all know Neil Levesque. He used to work for uh, your 2006 opponent, Charlie Bass. He is the head of the St. Anselm's Institute of Politics. They oversee a really well done poll. Every time they come out with a new poll, I like to have Neil on the show to talk about it. And he said, the level of uh, people in New Hampshire, which is a good proxy for America, saying that things are on the wrong track is at 68%. And he said, well, that's that's huge. That's like an unprecedented number. Neil's right about virtually everything, but I got to say, I really disagreed with him. Do you know in the last 40 or so years, since 1971, that, uh, sorry, 50 years, 50 years since the Gallup organization has been asking people their version of the right track, wrong track question. Do you know what the average answer saying wrong track is? 68%. Do you know what the average answer is over the last 10 years? 71%. This sense that things have gone wrong, and I mean horribly wrong in America, really runs pretty deep. And so when you get new polls coming out, like the one that over the weekend found Joe Biden's at this horrible, like 33% approval, like, okay, I get it. That's bad. That is bad. That is bad. But I really think it's worth asking the question, is there truly anything that's going to make 
people feel better on any kind of a sustained basis. I mean, we had a little shot in the arm when we finally got rid of, you know, Mr. Surrender Dorothy flying over the land of Oz, Donald Trump, but that wasn't sustained. And I don't think it's really because of anything Joe Biden did. I think it's because deep down, Americans are deeply, deeply unhappy. And our politics, our political system is not equipped to deal with that. And there are many factors that are making it worse. You know what? This is a discussion for a whole show. There's a whole show we should do on this. Let's do that another time. I want to put that in the parking lot because I want to turn back to Alicia on another piece of news that sort of unfolded toward the end of last week over the weekend, which is we started to get some fundraising numbers, which is what pundits and analysts tend to turn to at this point in the politics cycle, because it's really the only substantive measure that we can we can look at that says, how are things going in politics? And two big take-homes that I want to run by you, Alicia. One is that, good gracious, people running for the U.S. Senate are raising just a, a, a jaw-dropping amount of money, just an absolutely astounding amount of money. Raphael Warnock raised something like $30 million. Uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona has $25.6 million stockpiled. Uh, let's see, who else do we have here? Catherine Cortez Masto, $11.1 million. Even Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, which is not a big fundraising state, $7.6 million. The other piece of news that emerged is that the National Republican Senate Committee, that's the arm of the Republican Party that focuses on U.S. Senate races, has booked $140 million in advertising for the fall to take down Democrats. The, the, the numbers are eye-popping. The one place that stands out that they have not reserved any advertising, New Hampshire targeting Maggie Hassan. Alicia, what do you make of this gusher of money and the fact that it's not showing up in New Hampshire? Look, that's a lot of money and there's going to be a lot spent. I think they're seeing a red wave coming and they're hoping to capitalize on it and they're preparing for it. And the people who give money, both the big dollar donors and small dollar donors are getting involved. Um, you know, the New Hampshire takeaway, it's tough. We've got a primary. We've got a primary six, seven weeks before general election. And right now we've got a field of Republicans running for U.S. Senate. Um, you know, Chuck Morse is the Senate president. He's running, perceived to be the front runner. But then a guy named Bruce Fenton comes in, says, I'm going to dump five million of my own money in on the NRSC. Uh, and I say, well, if that guy wins, I don't need to put any funding in because he can fund himself. And why hedge your bet against someone who's got a pretty good approval rating in Maggie Hassan and a seven million dollar war chest? Um, you know, let the let the you know, let the money come on its own. And 140 million is a lot of money, but what they're doing is they're targeting seats they A, think they need to retain that might have a challenge, or B, seats they think they can overturn. And what they do is they make a list and they put them in order of priority and say, what do we want to spend to make this seat ours? And if there's any money left over later on, they'll drip it out. But I mean, I think that's what they're doing. I think they probably... I think New Hampshire is going to be a tough race, no matter who our nominee is. I think it will be Chuck Morse, probably, but it could be Bruce Fenton with his money. Uh, but beating Maggie Hassan is going to be tough when it's not Chris Sununu on our side of the aisle that's on that ticket. So you think just to push on this for a second and feel free to jump in on this or Paul, if you want to jump in, I would think that one of the consequences of having such a late primary so close to the general election is that you wouldn't have a great opportunity as a Republican primary challenger. You're, 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 you're Chuck Morse. You're hoping you're going to win the primary. Not a lot of time after that 
to raise a lot of your own campaign dollars for the general election. So you are counting on national Republicans to come in and essentially fund the TV that you're going to need to win this race. Does it, even with that context, does it strike you as a little surprising that they're saying, hey, you know, this is a seat. I mean, in, in polling, Maggie, who we love, Maggie is underwater. Her, her, her disapproval is higher than her approval. It's a very purple state. It seems like a very winnable seat. Does it surprise you at all that national Republicans aren't saying we're going to be in this game almost no matter who it is? No, and I think there's a few reasons for that. What I just said is they look at priorities. What are they most guaranteed to get bang for their buck from? Um, and New Hampshire, because Chris Sununu, our governor, decided not to run for U.S. Senate, we don't have the obvious winnable candidate. I think if Chris Sununu were on the ticket, they would have dumped a ton of money into New Hampshire. I think there was no question about it. Um, we've got a few potential candidates out there, but I I'd sit there in that office in Washington and go, yeah, but, you know, can Chuck beat Maggie? It's very possible Chuck Morris can beat her. It's very possible Bruce Fenton or Kevin Smith could beat her. But if I'm hedging my bets and looking where I'm more guaranteed to be effective, right now in New Hampshire, it's unclear. The reality is six, seven weeks, whatever it is between our primary and our general election is a very, very, very small window uh, to come out of a primary, be a nominee, campaign and win, particularly against a candidate who's got so much money in the bank and can spend it all along. She doesn't have to fight in a primary. She can like just drip it out, drip it out, drip it out and go full force once she figures out who her opponent's going to be. Hmm. So not sure I totally buy it. Not sure so I totally look, buy it. Go ahead, Paul. Look, the only thing that counts is name recognition. Issues don't matter. Your record don't doesn't matter. Votes don't matter. Name recognition matters. So Maggie Haskin has name recognition. Chuck Morse doesn't have name recognition. Nobody knows Bruce Fenton. Um, Wendy Ford uh, is uh, reputed to have come from New York State in the Keene area, and she wants to run the race. Uh, General Bolduc has raised $100,000. Good luck. So the, 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 the Republicans aren't stupid. They don't, there's not a chance uh, now that Maggie Hassan is going to lose in their mind. And so they're not going to put any money in New Hampshire. And what's going to be really interesting by the way, in New Hampshire. And I talked about this on the Capitol close-up um, uh, broadcast and podcast with Kevin Landrigan, is going to be what happens in the governor's race, that although Governor Sununu uh, has high favorability ratings, there's a chance that somebody with a lot of money and real name recognition could do something, especially given the abortion ban that Governor Sununu signed. And that could make New Hampshire a kind of marquee race if somebody like a Gary Hirschberg from New Hampshire gets into the race with scads of money and a lot of name recognition and a real track record with the business community. So I know that Alicia will poo-poo that and say, oh, yeah, he's to the left of Andy Velinsky. Well, you may say that, but he's got a business record that's going to work. So the uh, Republicans are saving their money for places where they may be able to have a chance. Well, I, just, I, I oh, go ahead, Alicia. I just want to note, I'm, I'm very confident unless he drunk drives over a classroom of third graders who are playing with puppies and kittens, Kristen and will get elected in November. If, if he were to do that, how mm -hmm. would you spin it? Again, this is this is part of our weekly segment. Alicia tries out to be national communications director for the presidential mm -hmm. campaign of Chris Sununu. 
look, there's been an overpopulation of puppies and kittens in America. <laughs> They've been eating all the overpriced cream. Those kittens have been taking all the cream <laughs> off the shelves and we had to thin the herd. <laughs> you know, I'm with you. I actually, I have to say, I agree with you. Animals come in two forms, dangerous and delicious. Kittens are neither. With that, I want to turn to just one more story from the week that I, I, I want to hit on. I don't want to be careful here. Folks, look, I want more follows on Twitter. We all do. I mean, that, that's, I, it's, it's cliched, but and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like thirst beg for follows. I am Matt L. Robeson on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you, you could follow all three of us. Urge you to. But I got to say, most Americans understand that Twitter is a pretty political crazy zone where the most activist people on both ends of the political spectrum get into it. It's, it's often a truth-free zone. There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of bots. I get followed all the time by very suspicious characters who are not real humans. I'll, I'll just, I'll admit it. That's, that's a portion of my followership. What I'm trying to figure out here, folks, is will any of this be made any better if Elon Musk is successful in his $43 billion bid to take over Twitter, Paul, would you like to weigh in on this first? What kind of craziness is this? It just, it's too much play money, okay? Elon Musk has too much play money. Why doesn't he ask me how to spend it? I would not tell him to spend $43 billion on Twitter. I have lots of other things to spend that kind of money on. And he's got this naive view that the platform ought to be a largely unpoliced space, free of censorship. What a bunch of caca. What a bunch of naive craziness in this age. Number one, it would make the platform itself unsafe. It would hurt the company. It would never really happen. And so in the face of this, um, you know, the Twitter and other platforms have spent some money and some time and employed some people to try to reduce hate speech, misinformation, and other toxic communication. Elon Musk just doesn't want anybody out there telling the truth about Elon Musk. He is a jerk, okay? Elon is a jerk. And Elon, yep. you want to go viral on me on Twitter? Let's go because you're a jerk. I invite you. I'd like nothing better than a Twitter battle with Elon Musk, you jerk. And if I didn't make my point clear, he's a jerk. Uh, we have some breaking news here. Elon Musk has been successful in his takeover bid of Twitter. And I'd like to announce our new sponsor, Twitter Incorporated. Thank you, Twitter. Continue to improve and enrich our lives. I'm joking. Uh, the, the last 15 <laughs> seconds was a total parody. Alicia, um, Paul has some strong feelings on this. Do you? <laughs> No, I really don't have any strong feelings whatsoever about this. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Don't you worry a little bit that social media might in general be bad? Like it might just Oh, oh no, it is bad the death for all of, us? of civilized society. Okay, okay, okay. Oh no, so, it is absolutely the death of civilized society, but it's not going anywhere. So it's if just, the idea you know, here is that we are going to take I don't know, meth and we're going to add kerosene to it so that in addition to messing up your brain, it actually explodes you. That's that's what we're looking to do with Twitter here by just removing all safeguards, all standards, all attempts to police bots, everything. I mean, that doesn't worry you a little. I mean, 
I don't think they can control it, right? I mean, we've learned this election election. We learned this when Zuckerberg testified before Congress that, look, new technologies, new ways to share fake news and bots and all this other stuff, it's just going to keep happening. People are going to keep spreading misinformation. At the end of the day, as long as an individual is willing to believe whatever fits their own narrative without checking for facts or information or truth, then it's going to continue and there is no way to stop it. Whether Elon Musk's in charge, whether they're, you know, Donald Trump's back on Twitter, nothing's going to change. The fact is the invention of social media killed civilized society and is ruining all of our lives. And we should realize that. And I'm AP Preston on Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm depressed. I'm, I'm so depressed. This is, you know what? I got to say this I, can someone can someone since the civil end of civilization has been declared here i just like to ask first of all i'd like to thank all of our listeners for it for attending during this end period of civilization second of all i'd like to ask that the last people out of the room just shut off the lights and uh close the door on american society and with that very hopeful and helpful note i'm gonna have to wrap up here Paul, but that we'll see you next week